Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. We're very glad to have David Marlett with American Red, um, a book in which capitalists and socialists love and sacrifice are tussling it out. Um, it's the story of Big Bill Haywood, one of the greatest domestic terrorists in American history. Um, it's a book that Michael Connolly called a feat of amazing storytelling, a legal thriller that holds you till the last train out. Uh, David Marlett is an award-winning storyteller and writer of historical fiction. His last novel, Fortunate Son, was a national bestseller, and he's currently writing his next historical legal thriller, Angelus Los, set in 1910 at the intersection of Hollywood, the bombing of the LA Times, and tobacco millionaire Abbott Kinney. Uh, we're so glad to have him here and to hear from some of the work. Thank you. just here. Maybe they stepped out and they're not kind of coming right back. I know they're coming back. Oh well. When they come back, they do. Well, thank you guys for being here. I, um, I really appreciate it. I, I, this is the start of a, a, a tour um, that I'm going on and I'm uh, always just sort of not nervous but just sort of like, I'm not real sure because one of the things that a lot of when I've done other ones, a lot of people have read the book and I know a lot of you haven't. Um, I'm hoping you do, um, and I'm uh, so I'm kind of cautious tonight when I talk about it about giving too much away. Um, that that it's a little, and so I spent a lot of time working on what I want to read tonight and share with you and talk to you about, um, but trying to find things that didn't um, didn't reveal too much. Aren't one of the things about this, and I'll get into it the details in a minute. But I was that it's it, it is it is a complex story, Stuart read it I know he um, it, and it's so a lot of what is it was a greater challenge than my first one trying to figure out what to read <laughs> because so much was like okay you'd have to explain how much of this I have to explain for me to understand what I'm talking about here. Um, this this I had finished Fort, fortune's son is uh, also uh, what interests me I'm an attorney and and I uh, don't practically practice um, but I've been interested in the story of law and the stories that always interested me relative to in the practice of it itself. Um, and my first novel, like I mentioned, Fortunate Son, I, I came across that story when I was in law school and I wanted to write it and it hadn't been written, but it was a story set in the 1740s. And it was one of them that I, I kind of, I could get my hands around and I was kind of looking for it, but when I'd finished it, I started looking for, um, um, what I was going to do next. And I had read a book, I don't know if any of you are familiar with uh, Anthony Lucas, who was a, he was a Pulitzer winner for a, co a book called Common Ground back in the late 70s or early 80s, um, maybe mid-80s, uh, nonfiction writer. And he written a book called Big Trouble, which is a big book. Um, and it tells the story of Big Bill Haywood, which was this leader of this miner, uh, a mining union, uh, murderous mining union. And I got interested in it and I read it, but what really got me was I started, I heard about this story that 
after winning the Pulitzer and going off and researching this, all this activity around Bill Haywood, he wrote big, come on in, come on. And he wrote um, Big Trouble. He was at the top of his career. This is 1996. He went back to New York, um, turned in the manuscript, and went to his hotel and hanged himself and said it was this story that drove him to do that in the suicide note. Big Trouble? Big Trouble, the author of Big Trouble. And I knew it was about this Darrow case, Clarence Darrow case. And so with those two pieces of information, I thought, what would, what? I mean, obviously he had other troubles, um, but what would, what, what was this? Um, and then I read, the, and I had learned, there's a closing argument in this, in this lawsuit um, that Clarence Darrow, Florence, um, come on in. Y'all just come on in. Um, and, and by the way, I, this is not some, this is so informal tonight, and we do have this. this these are here for you. So if anybody wants to come up while I'm talking, I don't care. You're not being rude. Just come up and serve yourself um, if, if any of this interests you. Um, so, so anyway, whoever's the alcoholic, go first. Um, no, I'm totally, I'm yeah, yeah, <laughs> thanks. Um, so anyway, with that piece of information, this, this curiosity of what would drive this Pulitzer winning, you know, obviously, you know, he claimed it was because of this story. And he spent months and months, he took a room in the Idenau Hotel in Boise, which is where a lot of this takes place, um, in Boise, and from there, researched and researched and wrote this thing. So I read Big Trouble, which is a difficult read. Um, it's just so long and so convoluted. But I started finding this nuggets of the story and thinking there's, sure, there's a story here, but it was, it was very depressing. Um, it's all bad people. It's all bad guys doing bad things. And so I kind of set it aside. But at the same time, I knew Clarence Darrow's um, closing argument from law school. The closing argument Clarence Darrow gives in this case is taught in law school. It's a classic closing argument. It's brilliant. He actually, he goes on, he, he says basically, my client's guilty, but let me tell you why you still shouldn't find him guilty. And it's just beautifully, beautifully, it's amazing the man can, can do that. You know, back in the days when they would do closing arguments that literally went for a day and a half um, and would keep people riveted. Any case, so with those two pieces of information, I started researching what would become this book, American Red. And it sat on the shelf for me for a long time. I just couldn't, it was, it was interesting. I knew the basic facts. The, the adventure in the book is, is extraordinary. It's one of these I want to put, you know, a subtitle of only the most amazing things in here are true. Um, I mean, it's just the incredibleness of what they did. I'm trying not to give much away to violate the law to capture this guy and to completely go against what we consider to be now would never be allowed. Um, and what he did, the violence that was being happening in the Western United States, which I'll get into in a minute. Um, you know, it's fascinating. But was it enough for a book? You know, was it something I really was passionate about to tell the story? Um, I, I kept coming back to, okay, this guy killed himself after writing this one. Do I really want to dive into this? Um, I knew it was going to be a big dive. And so I just set it aside, and I started working on other things that I've been involved in for years. You know, um, and it wasn't until I went back 
and started researching what I could piece together of the women in the story. And the wives, and the girlfriends, and the spies, um, and how women were, being, were engaged, involved on both sides. Then I started realizing I might have something. And what most interested me, and I'm now getting to the point, and I'll read some in a minute, but saying these things I'm hoping we'll put in context when I'm going to read. Let me first just tell you, Big Bill Haywood, and I'm not giving anything away, obviously it's, he's, he's described in the novel and everything else, so I'm, just, I'm not giving you the novel version of the description, just my quick little, just so you understand the concepts of what we're talking about here. Imagine a guy about my height who lost his eye when he was nine in, the, in a mining accident in the late 1800s, never put in a prosthetic, and would um, use that data orb to stare people down. Uh, so much so that even lawyers would write, even Clarence Darrow didn't like him looking at him. Um, and now Clarence Darrow, and he rose, Bill Big Bigwell Haywood rose to be the head of the Western Federation of Miners, which when I'm reading, you'll hear him talk about federation, and that's the union. They call him the federation. This would be long before, but eventually it would be rolled into the, what's now the AFL-CIO, but this is back at the end. This is when unions were first testing their metal. And it's amazing how much murder went on in the mining states throughout the Rocky Mountains during the late 1800s, especially into the early 1900s. Um, they were regularly, and this, a lot of this is in the book, uh, demonstrated, but they would regularly, under Big Bill's orders, uh, bomb and set off explosions at mines that weren't cooperating with the Union, killing hundreds of people. Um, and one of the things, it's real easy to hate Big Bill. It's real easy. And one of the things he became a fascinating character to me was he's also probably one of the leading people that caused us to have the eight-hour workday. He led the charge for anti-child labor. He, provided, he made sure every miner that was a part of the union had health care, access to health care. When the mining companies wouldn't, wouldn't even bury anybody, if you died in a mine, you might be left there if it was an area that wasn't used anymore. He would make sure every single union member had a formal funeral and was paid for, all paid for by the unions. He opened his arms to every immigrant nation. I mean, he was open, he was extremely non-racially biased. Because you're down in the mines working, it doesn't matter what, what color you are, you, you all come out the same color. And that's, that's the color of the, of the chalk, that, whatever you're mining. Um, but he was open, whereas really it was a heavy day for anti-Italian and anti, um, certainly a beginning of anti-Jewish, but even in the West, anti-Irish, um, um, anti-American Indian, um, all pretty heavy about that time. And he you was know, very much open-armed about all that, gregarious. And I think what was interesting to me is how dangerous he was, how dangerous, friendly, you know, <laughs> the devil can show up in a very nice smile on his face and can do some really good things, which got a lot of people willing to turn a blind eye to him and to say, yeah, but it's Big Bill, you know. He looked at all this stuff, he's done good. It was hard for the, you know, for your, your husband or your brother, you know, most of it was men, well, almost all men in, in the mines, but, you know, had been killed 
um, you knew the mine owners, they just, they kept tally based on deaths. And it was a good, you know, it was a good, I have a scene in the opening of the book where, the, you know, the one mine superintendent, his bosses are coming into town from New York, and he's excited to tell them only 30 people died in the last three or four months, because that's a great number. Um, because death, it was just, it, it, it was just, you were seen as a commodity, uh, the mine workers. So in, the, in that environment, he walks in the very dangerous person who is very willing to kill, but at the same does, does some interesting things. Well, even that, well, again, um, I would love to tell you, well, I can't tell you how it, it ends, I would still, but anyway, it's, the rest of his story is interesting too, but I won't, I won't give that part, I will write that part. Um, anyway, but still that wasn't enough for me to write this until I met his wife. And I see, say meet, because it's almost how I find that there's very little written about her, as you can often time, at that time, there's very little written about some of the women that were involved. But let me tell you a little bit about Neva, and then we're going to read some. I'll quit talking so much. Um, and these are just two of, as some people have said, this book's got basically eight main characters. Um, but these are our two that really, I'm trying to get to why I wrote this book. It was when I met Neva, because Neva, his wife, her name is Nevada, um, she's very religious, Seventh-day Adventist. He could give a rat's ass about any religion. She's polio-stricken, which was rare in the West. She had gone to New York young, in a younger part of her life, and the feeling was she contracted. All this is true, by the way. I know this is a novel, but all I'm telling you right now is all true. And she contracted polio, came back, and polio was, wasn't really understood around the turn of the 1900s. And a lot of people thought it was contagious. So Big Bill is her husband. So now she's, she's in a wheelchair. People think she's contagious. Her own daughters, Big Bill sends them off to a boarding house. And they're young. They're, they're six and eight. I mean, they're young. So she's separated from her daughters. But she's the wife of the most powerful man in Denver and in the West. I mean, he's, she considered him second only to Teddy Roosevelt, which is not entirely untrue. And she gives her sister to him as his mistress. And I love that she becomes this character, which I'm hoping people read her and you're not really sure whether you like her or not. She turns a blind eye to a lot of what he does. But, and I, it took me a long time to figure out why was she okay with her young sister being his mistress? But then you start thinking about it. Here's this woman who the only person she has in her life is her sister out here in the West. She doesn't know very many other people. A lot of the women, you know, she's, she's in this wheelchair. No one wants to push her around. She's on crutches. People all think she's contagious. And she has her sister who loves her. Her parents are gone. She only has her sister. And this way, she, her sister stays near, and she doesn't have to sleep with him. And her sister's a power hungry, and she loves this whole attention thing. So she, as you get to know Neva in the book, She's kind of, in fact, there's an opening scene where you get to know Neva, and she's waiting on Bill and Winnie to finish up so she, they can go to dinner. Um, and she's hoping Bill will be in a better mood um, by the time they go to dinner. And so it's just this pragmatics about her that I really fell in love with her, of, the, of the tr what she was going through and dealing with her own choices about her own religion. They were funneling money off to the Seventh-day Adventists who were getting paid for by the unions. 
and she knew it was wrong. And at the same time, what I, the sub-story, sub you'll meet this other character in here, is she has fallen in love with a man who also works for the union, works for her husband. So to her, you know, you want to go, well, she's committing adultery, but really? I mean, she's found a man who loves her and just really cares for her and doesn't care that she's in the chair and, and does so much for her. So right under her husband's nose, and that guilt factor sets in on her. There's so many things. So I just really, once I found her, I knew I had a story. But even then, you've got other characters. Now, um, I'll, let me tell you about a couple others. Another one is a guy named <laughs> James McParland. McParland was the most famous detective in America at the time. He's the only living person that, that um, Sir, I just lost his name suddenly, Sherlock Holmes writer, um, standing in a bookstore. Thank you. Yes, Conan Doyle. Put in, in a book to go on and do a, um, an action with Sherlock Holmes, the only living person that he ever put in there. That was how famous McParlin was. And he was the head of the Pinkertons in Denver. And he hated Bill, Big Bill. So you set up this dynamic between the Pinkertons and the Union. And the Pinkertons are the hired guns of the, of the, of the, of the owners. And what I, what's so interesting is you get this time period right in here where there's this pre-FBI. There's no real investigative service. It's, but it's, the, what we, and it's what I find so interesting today. I'm not trying to get into modern-day politics, but it's the corporations gone amok. There's the power and the money that said, this is the way it's going to be, and we'll hire our own armies to defend it. We'll investigate any crimes ourselves, and we'll bring them to justice, and we'll buy the courts, and we'll buy the attorneys, and we will control this. And the more you start seeing their point of view, the owner's point of view, and this army they had of the Pinkertons, then to me, it's suddenly the union becomes even more like sympathetic. But it's real. But the moment what I loved about this, I'm sorry, I'm going to ramble on too long. But the moment, thing I loved about this was just the moment you start feeling sympathetic for the union, you realize what the hell they're doing. And you're going, oh my God, I can't be sympathetic with these people. Um, but it took this crucible, right, as we're turning the century from the 1800s to the 1900s, that it took to create the FBI. The, uh, the, all the unions after this particular trial, not just in this time period, this particular event ended violence in the unions. The unions started moving away from it very fast. So that's Big Bill. McParlin's a first-generation Irish. He's just a wonderful character. He's got these huge handlebar mustaches. He's sort of still left. He's still stuck in the 1800s. This is all in 1906 and 1907. So you get a lot of these older generation which knew the you know, Civil War vets around, which is really an interesting thing to go back and write that time period and imagine what it was like to be around. Well, we got Civil War vets walking around. You've got people who, who were part of the Indian Wars. And now you might have a plane go over? I mean, it just the technology change was happening so rapidly to these people. We think about how technology is changing and it sort of affects generations today. We kind of go, oh my gosh, these things are changing so fast. Well, suddenly you've got a telephone? I mean, I was doing this research. It was always sort of shocked me. People would be sending a telegraph, and then I'd research. Somebody made a phone call. And you're like, what? Like, oh, yeah, they could call each other. But they were just, a lot of people didn't like telephones. So they're like, what? You could pick up a phone? And then you have automobiles coming along, which I have a lot of fun with in the book. 
um, which I, because I, I understand, you know, I, I can write, hopefully I can write from both male and female perspectives, I hope. Um, obviously I can write probably better from the male. But it was a lot of this, like, I see a lot of what the men do with gadgets and how the, the, the introduction of the automobile would be such a fascinating thing to some. Some would be like, I'll take my horse, thank you. Um, and I had a scene that I enjoyed writing where two guys are, find themselves leaning on the front of a car. And they just realized they've never leaned on, they can't lean on a horse. Um, but that was just a new experience to be, what we now take for advantage, to be sitting out and leaning on your car, talking in the street. Well, they'd never done anything like that before. Just those little things. I thought, how was it interesting to be in those little moments? Um, uh, the first car races, the idea of car races, knew there's something involved in this. Another thing is, a lot of this, some of this, and I'm about to, and I promise I gotta, I gotta shut up and read some. Um, but a lot of this, I hope you can see, I'm excited about this. There's a lot to me that's, um, that helps pull and make this such an energetic story, is you get these people moving through this, and at the same time, you've got all these real events. The San Francisco earthquake had just happened. We hear a lot about, everybody's heard about the earthquake and the San Francisco fire. But what interested me was, what was life like in San Francisco eight months later? You know, when you've got this burned out, what was the refugee, how did they handle refugees? We think about refugees today and all these, you know, we think about other countries, but it's more, I found that, you know, what do we do in aftermaths of disasters today? Well, what did they do then? How did that work? Had they raised money for that? Did they have to keep all, these, all this? You have, you know, you have thousands and thousands dead and buildings destroyed, and then you're trying to rebuild? Um, and so, and so I just, and I, and that was just a happy coincidence. I suddenly realized one of my guys, um, was in San Francisco, and I'm like, oh, this will be interesting to take people there. What would it be like to step off the train in San Francisco eight months after the fire and see all that just devastation and see what's... And so there's a scene I, I'm not going to read tonight, but where he gets off, and I realized that was the very first time an old, a guy who had, had been working on tractors named Holt um, had taken an idea of a, train, of, a, of a tread and put it on his tractor, and they brought it to San Francisco to help clean up the ruins, and they called it a caterpillar. That's the beginning of Holt Caterpillar. And one of the very first times was there in San Francisco when they're trying to clean up the ruins, and they're all, and so I have a scene, which I just, I, if, especially you, you gentlemen will understand, where a bunch of men are standing around all just looking at this machine. Like, what is that thing? What's, how's it going to work? And all debating with each other as if they knew uh, what the best way was for them to try to get that thing going. Anyway, so there's a lot of that little stuff. I have a lot of fun with the time. But the, what was more interesting to me in the bigger story, hopefully, is just these people that are going through. They're the generations. Um, the last two characters I'll talk about, and then I'll start reading some. Um, are my fictional characters, I, I say that because I say it at the end of the book, but I, maybe I shouldn't say it at the beginning, but everybody's real except, and I have two characters that I use which were sort of amalgams of other people. Um, I knew of some of the spies, but I didn't have names for them. So I put a, pulled those together and I have two, and I play on the generations. So this is a, they're a younger couple, one's a spy for the Federation, one's a spy for the and they're true people. I just don't know the exact names. I, that's where I take my fictional license. Um, and so I bring those two people. So there are two people who are main characters in this story. 
Um, and the, but, but they get introduced, they come, they get, they, they don't get become main until maybe the second half. Um, and I'm carrying them forward into my next book that I'm writing, which is another, which is what Clarence Darrow did after this, when he came here for the bombing of the Los Angeles Times. So anyway, I think I've said enough. Um, for those who've come in while I was jacking, this is all here for you. you. It's not rude for you to get up and while I'm talking and just come help yourself. Um, if anybody wants, you don't need to. They can just help themselves. This is my for those who I have. That's my daughter. She's our bartenderess tonight. But you can serve yourself. Um, so if you'll indulge me, I'll read you some. And that doesn't lift. Um, And I'll just because we're we're a small group here, I'll just pull back a curtain. I, I, I talked to her; she's read, read it, and I talked to her a lot about these choices because I was like, "Oh my gosh, I'm gonna bore these people." There's so much to. I'm trying to pick out scenes that give you a flavor of the book, but there's so much. There's so many different characters, and so I'm trying not to leave any of them off. But I'm so I'm kind of sensitive about how long some of this will go, and I'm trying not to keep you too long either. Um, so I'm not all the, don't worry, I'm not reading all these tabs. <laughs> <laughs> Not at all. Um, Clarence Darrow, well, I'll say by him, a lot of people, you've heard of Clarence Darrow. A lot of people don't, aren't really sure. They just like heard of him, like this American lawyer, this great American lawyer. That's pretty much what I think most people know. You know, maybe you've heard of the Scopes Monkey Trial, who he's famous for, where, um, which that happens much later than this. But he's kind of considered the sort of all-American fighter for the working man. Well, he was the conciliary <laughs> for the union. He was, there, he was Bill Haywood's private attorney, which, again, I love the contrast. This, yeah, he's, he's, but he's for, he's for the little man, but he finds himself defending murderers. Not murderers that, yes, he defended lots of murders in his career. He was a, as a defense attorney. But ones he knows are in, in the process of committing, and he's helping them figure it out. So that sort of... Um, catches up with him, but it, uh, that's going to be the next book because he comes here and he gets, Darrow himself gets arrested for a felony here in Los Angeles. Um, but that's not in this one. So anyway, so I'm going to start off just getting the setting. Darrow has just lost a trial at the beginning of the book um, against a corporation where he's representing some minors. And the jury just, he had all the facts in his favor. I've read the whole trial transcript. There's zero reason, but the jury still went with the corporation. So he's now walking back from the courthouse to have to come report to his client, Big Bill Haywood. Bad news. Darrow had been modestly confident of a victory. Evidence had poured forth on the lack of commonly used stops in the vertical shaft, the negligence of not having another man on duty at the collar, the incompetence of hiring a hoisting engineer with no qualifications, the carelessness of allowing 16 men on the lift, and the overall failure of the mine owners to ensure the brake system had prop was properly inspected. Thus, the jury's verdict rattled him. They found in favor of the mine owners, holding the man's deaths to be within the risk taken in the performance of their labors. The dead were nothing, and their widows were entitled to nothing. Their children were nothing either, nothing. Walking from the courthouse, Darrow's embarrassment was assuaged only by his outrage, his fury at the obvious judicial bias of the Colorado courts. 
Though he had won the battle of evidence, he had been buttressed by the judge's sympathies. Darrow had lost the jury to the artifice of an inherently corrupt system. He reasoned and rationalized. The jury must have felt trapped, like birds in a cage, unable to exercise their natural abilities. The law, written by politicians bought wholesale by the mine owners, encouraged juries away from their principles, their private moral sense of justice. Clearly, the mine owners were responsible, but they would not be forced to pay. He fumed as he walked, feeling flat-footed and fraught. The horrific deaths of those, of those men, flesh and blood fathers, husbands, brothers, and sons, were just ledger sheet costs, and the cost of this trial but a pittance plucked from those shareholders' ripe asses. Damnation, he muttered aloud as he crossed Larimore Street. Corporations were a duplicitous class of self-prescribed citizens able to fly the, the gold laissez-faire flag when it served them, when it was needed for profits. But then they would shuttle up the red flag of socialistic sanctuary to shield themselves from losses, like a semaphore in a hurricane. And the voters were too ignorant to see it, too lazy to pay attention, too comfortable, too miserable in their own personal failures to identify their true oppressors. He felt his cheeks flush, then heard his wife, Ruby, faintly admonishing him. Darling, no man tries harder to write things, she would say. But your wax wings will take you only so far. You can flap and fly and try, but sooner or later, the flames of other men's stupidity will get you. She was aggravatingly right, even if her analogy was wanting. He took a breath and checked the creases of his hat. He would deliver the bad news to his client. William Big Bill Haywood, the leader of the Western Federation of Miners. He would tell him in person, man to man, ignoring what was probable that Haywood would have already learned of the verdict from one of his spies and minions. They were everywhere in these streets, along with their counterparts, Pinkerton operatives. Darrow grimaced, Haywood might fire him. Maybe not, probably not. The one consolation, 13 of the 15 dead had been Federation. Thus, they had received ceremonial funeral cartages, shiny black carriages pulled by teams of equally black horses, trailed by hundreds of miners in solemn procession. Haywood had instructed that the other two dead men, neither being Union, be left where they fell to rot at the bottom of the shaft. Nearing the Federation's offices, and his own office nearby, Darrow paused under sycamore trees whose disconsolate shadows matched the gray of his cynicism. And in that gloom, Haywood's favorite rubric, and polemic alike, came to, David, to Darrow's mind. The four boxes of change. The soap box, the ballot box, jury box, and cartridge box. Certainly the soap box could be commanding. It had led to the formation of the Federation, the most powerful labor union in the United States. And with the ballot box, the Federation had forced laws for an eight-hour workday, protect, wage protections, and the prohibitions against child labor. But those laws were useless without enforcement, without the power of the jury box, Darrow's domain. And so it was supposed to be, or so it was supposed to be. But when he failed, like today, when juries brought back verdicts such as this one, unwilling to hold owners liable, what was left? Perhaps Haywood was right. The moment was at hand for the fourth and final box, the cartridge box. Regretful but true, maybe it was time for violence to bear its inexorable teeth to exact what it had proven throughout history to be singularly capable of achieving, authentic and proximate change. One thing was certain, thought, Harry, thought Darrow, 
as he stepped around bird droppings toward the granite arched portico of the pioneer building. By any means, by any box, it was time for real change. So that's kind of the introduction to Darrow. What is, I'm not, this is one of the action scenes I'm about to read you, which is written on the back of the book. So everybody, I'm not giving anything away. Um, the, the trial that's going to happen at the end of this book is because the, the Democrat governor of Idaho, after the Union, well, the Union went into Idaho and blew the shit out of the Independence Mine, killing a bunch of people, which is, that's in the book. And afterwards, the Democratic governor of Idaho, um, who had been elected mainly because, by the unions, uh, called up Roosevelt, called up the feds, and they sent in federal troops. And they arrested every union person they could get their hands on without any regard to whether that had anything to do with the bombing or not in the whole state. They even started arresting the dentists who take care of, took care of the union one. And they, without trial, threw them in a massive barn and, with, and, it, and much to the chagrin had, it was only a black regiment that, that they brought in, which pissed off a lot of the, the race, you know, at that time. It was a, so you brought in federal troops. This is your governor you've put in office. He didn't like the fact that we went into his state and blew the shit out of one of the mines and killed a bunch of people, which, in fact, okay, that is pretty bad. But then the response was to go arrest every single person without habeas corpus and without any trial and throw them into a giant barn and keep them without trial. It's, like it's hard to imagine this is actually going on in the United States. So what's the union's response? And this is the main subject of this book, the main topic, is they sent in their favorite bomber. And, well, I'll just read this. At 5.30 that evening, Frank Stunenberg, that's the governor, smiled in remembrance. The image of, he's just walked, this is right near Christmas time, this is exactly the way it happened. He walked from his, from his house in Boise to his office uh, to take care of some business, and now he's, it's late and it's snowy, and he's on his way back home, okay? Uh, there's a person named Orchard that's going to pop up in this. Orchard is our hired bomber for the Union. At 5.30 that evening, Frank Sternenberg smiled in remembrance, the image of his children engulfing him. Earlier, around 2.30, having left his home through the kitchen door so to avoid his son following him out, Frank had walked the snowy mile to his office for the appointed 3 o'clock meeting. But when the insurance man never arrived, Frank finished some light paperwork, then rose to make the 30-minute walk home. Though it was after dark, if he left now, the children might still be awake for a wrestle to the bemusement of his wife. He put his arms through his coat, snuffed the oil lamps, locked the bank office doors, and left. The near-black starless sky was resumed, had resumed dropping its silent snow. Frank's snow's shoes crunched. Sorry, I lost my line. Frank's shoes crunched, and as he felt the moisture against his ankles, he wondered why he had not worn his boots. He made the turn from the boulevard onto his street's long boardwalk. And there he saw his home at the end, the warm glow from the windows. As he approached, he saw the silhouette of his daughter watching him from the window. Good, they're still up, he thought. With two more houses to go, Frank passed a low row of holly bushes 
their black-green leaves almost buried in the dark gray-white of the evening snow. Noting the small silhouette of his son, noting the small silhouette of his son had joined that of his daughter in the window, he failed to see the figure of a man crouched low in the blackness of the hedgerow. Orchard felt the fishing line in his bare, shivering hand. It was taut, disappearing into the sharp-leaved bushes and beyond across the small roadway, there spanning another yard and then along the governor's fence to its terminus at the gate. He had gauged this would be a sufficient distance from the blast, but now he worried. His hand shook so much that he loosened his grip on the line, fearing he might pull it prematurely. Just then, good evening, Gov, broke the silence from the roadway just beyond the hedges. Orchard clenched every muscle, pulling himself into an even tighter ball. But in so doing, he pitched ever so slightly forward to where his cheek met the sharp tips of the holly leaves. He reflexed a minuscule mm sound before fixing himself again, motionless, breath held. Frank had just replied, good evening to you, Zeb, when both men heard a sound from the dark shrubs but discounted it as some critter. How was your Christmas celebration? Frank asked flatly. Splendid, Governor, replied the man. I hope you and yours have a happy new year, my friend. And you, Frank offered over his shoulder, having resumed his walk, unwilling to linger to talk with this Republican who was anything but a friend. Once in front of his house, he saw his children had called for their mother to join them at the window. They waved and grinned, waving back and noting the snow was falling harder Frank was glad to be home. He opened his front gate. The explosion was heard and felt over 10 miles away. It shook cognac snifters from cabinets, decorative plates off brass displays, and cracked glass windows for blocks around. At the Stunenberg home, the concussive blast blew out every window along the front and side of the house, shards slicing the faces of the family inside. It loosened the front porch from its piers, flattened most of the fence, leaving only a few posts, obliterating the gate entirely, and turned the cold whiteness to warm red, a massive ruddy daisy thrown onto the snowy yard, its 10-foot bloody petal shooting in all directions from a gaping black center. So, that was the end of the governor. Um, and so what ensues is the um, determination led by McParland of the Pinkertons to bring Bill, Big Bill to justice for killing for this. And which was, this was the first uh, domestic terrorist, it was the first assassination by bombing in United States history. Um, okay, let me jump to something a little different now. I'll give you a little taste of, of McParland. Um, another sidekick character to McParland, he's not sidekick, he's, these are all true characters, but one of the characters I really like, oh, I watch our time, okay, I watch. Um, I really like is Senator Bora. Senator Bora would go on throughout the 1900s to become a leading senator, United States senator. He'd just been elected, though, at this time, and women loved him. And I don't know if, you've, if you agree with me, but sometimes you look at these pictures, you say, oh, so-and-so, was, oh, she was so beautiful, or he was so handsome. And you look at the old pictures, and you're kind of like, really? Um, <laughs> you look at a picture of Bohr, and you go, oh, 
okay, I get it. And he was a womanizer extraordinaire. His wife, was, he was married, but he was well known to have mistresses in Washington, D.C., and including to have slept with um, Roosevelt's daughter, the troublemaker. Um, which they, his daughter went on, and this is not in the book, this is later, but the daughter went on and, and was married to a, if you know the story of Roosevelt's daughter, I've forgotten her name, I'm, it's not coming to me, but anyway, um, the, he had several children, one daughter was particularly trouble, um, and she married a, a, co a congressman. At the same time, the rumor was she was sleeping with Senator Bora. Their child was born and they named it Deborah. Deborah, <laughs> which got the notice of a lot of people. Um, so anyway, um, so Bora, he assigns himself, he's a Republican for the state of Idaho, and he gets himself appointed, which is, again, this is very different. Well, this is not that long ago. He gets himself appointed. He says, a sitting United States senator gets himself appointed as the special prosecutor in this case. So he's going to personally prosecute. Haywood. And his right hand is McParland, who is this, as I've told you, this aging Irish Pinkerton detective, very famous. Okay? So they're having a, uh, this is a short little passage, I'll just give a little flavor of them. Um, they're having a little powwow where they're first kind of getting together who all is going to do what um, at the beginning of this, uh, as the investigation begins. There's several other people in this scene, don't worry about it. There's a legislator and a sheriff and some other people that are there. The legislator spoke on, regarding detective agencies, we anticipate the Thiel Detective Agency, more specifically Captain Swain, will be hired by the Wobblies, the Federation. These were two competing, at that time you had private detectives who were just getting started. Um, and we get the term, by the way, private eye from the logo of the Pinkertons. Their, their logo was a single eye. That's why we call them private eyes. Um, but there was another competing, a lot of these guys would leave the Pinkertons and go set up their own shop. And so this leading other one, there's another main character, this is this competing th detective agency who they're saying, we think they're gonna get hired by the defense. So anyway, the legislator spoke on, regarding detective agencies, we anticipate the Thiel detective agency, more specifically Captain Swain, will be hired by the Wobblies, the Federation. Swain, detective, scoffed McParlin. A possum calling himself a mountain lion, you ask me. The Federation, the Federation, the enfeebled sheriff scowled. You've decided they're responsible? Not exactly, began Bora. Aye, exactly, said McParland. There are other possibilities in the Federation, said Bora. Sure, said McParland. I suppose all things are possible, though not equally. For this, be certain of it. We'll soon find the man who triggered the bomb and his accomplice. But gentlemen, the defendant in this case will be William Haywood of the Western Federation of Miners, I assure you. We have no evidence Haywood was here at the time, Jim. You know that, said Bora. We don't have extradition grounds. Just find the bomber. Let's hang him. That's all we can do. McParlin's eyes narrowed. That's not all we can do, Senator. All within the law, sniffed Bora. As was just said, McParlin replied, we are the law on this. No, now, Bora had had enough. I'm the special prosecutor here. I'll be telling you, Mr. McParlin, what we can and cannot do in the court of law. After a beat, McParlin spoke, his voice level. Senator, the law has fences around you, I know. So I'll bring in the killers 
and put them inside those fences for you. But out beyond that, beyond those fences, beyond the courts, there's a broad range. And out there, out there is where we'll get Haywood, whatever it takes. Okay, so that's a little of that. I get a sense that I've still got too much. I've got to pare this down. I'm looking at my daughter because we talked about this earlier. Um, let me give you a little flavor of what is a delicious character to write. Horrible human being. Um, there's two main killers in this story. There's Orchard, who we saw was pull, who pulled the string on the bomber. He was the bomber. But there was another. They had he hired lots of killers. And another thing's interesting is you have all these gun hands coming in. The wild, the West is over. But you have a lot of people who are out here in the West who kind of, it was a, at that time you, the West had this lore was just beginning. A lot of these little booklets and pamphlets and you know, you know, all these things about that, all that whole Western lore that we think of, that was just really beginning then. So you get a lot of guys who don't have any story to tell. They came out, but they were a little late. They were a little late. They, didn't, they weren't at Dodge City. They didn't have to deal with, you know, with, with, with some of these guys. They weren't part of any of that lore. That's a dangerous thing, because now there's no regulations on guns. You've got a lot of guys with guns out here ready to help out. And if there's going to be some violence, all the better. I might have a story to tell, especially if they missed the Spanish-American War. They didn't fight in the Civil War. If they weren't in the Indian War, and they got all these other people. There's so many men had war experience or Western experience, but you come out, and now you've got nothing. It's a new century, and technology is moving on. There's a pressure there. And again, anytime those opportunities came, there's an opportunity for some bad people to get hired into some situations where they weren't. So one of these guys, and he's just a psychopath, even doesn't matter about any of that, is a guy named Steve Adams. This is a sad but true events that Steve did. He's gone to San Francisco. He was supposed to have killed a man. Man lived. Haywood sent him to go finish the job. And at San Francisco Market near the Ingleside racetrack, Steve Adams was next in line. He fidgeted, adjusted his cap, asked the time from the man behind him, examined the bottle of Coca-Cola and examined the bottle of Coca-Cola in his hand. The woman ahead of him was in a protracted conversation with the clerk, causing agitation in the queue. Adams listened to their discussion. In the aftermath of the city's devastation, an explosion of rats and other vermin had caused a run on strychnine. In fact, the store was almost out. When it was his turn, Adams set the bottle of Coca-Cola on the counter and said, this one and one of them last bottles of strychnine you were gabbing about. Rat problems. Three weeks earlier, after fully shaking the Pinkertons from his tail, Adams found what remained of the intersection of Franklin and Grove Streets, the home of the brother of James Branson, the one-handed superintendent of the Bunker Hill Mine. That's who he's there to kill. Had indeed, the house had indeed burned down. The next day, Adams made his way to the temporary government building on Washington Street, just past Knob Hill. There he stood in line for two hours before getting an opportunity to flip through the public records regarding the earthquake and fires, ledgers of damage claims of recovery of debris removal, a book that listed thousands of names of the dead, or in many cases, just descriptions of remains, along with any unique features, along with the location where each body or body part had been found and another book that categorized the names and destinations of the living who had been displaced. Thirty minutes later, he walked to a home on Faxon Street. 
which was between Lake Avenue, Lake, Lakeview Avenue and Holloway Avenue, as best as he understood them from a city map he stole from a street vendor. For the next two weeks, he pretended to be a hobo, and from across Faxon, he observed the comings and goings at the house. A woman and two children, mostly, never a man. In fact, Adams began to think Branson might have stashed his family in the house before he left San Francisco, before he left San Francisco himself. Then, two days before Adams was going to move on, he spotted Branson entering the home. The time had come. The next day, Adams went to a gambling den outside the gates, outside the gates to a nearby racetrack, won 35 cents, and took his winnings to a nearby market for another Coca-Cola. It was there that he bought the strychnine. Before sunrise the next day, Adams slipped out of his boarding house and returned to hide in his observation nest on Faxon. At 7.10 that morning, he heard the approaching clip-clop and steel-banded wheels on brick he was anticipating. Then he watched a big bay horse turning a four-wheeled milk wagon from Holloway onto Faxon and draw to a stop. After unloading wood crates, each containing 12 white bottles, onto a handcart, the driver proceeded door to door, placing one or two bottles of milk on most of the porches along Faxon, including two on the Branson porch. After the wagon left, it took only 20 seconds for Adams to cross the street, empty the contents of the strychnine bottle into one of the milk bottles on the Branson's porch, and walk away, guzzling from the other bottle, excess milk dripping from his chin. And he kills the whole family. Um, he's, a, he's, a, he's one of those awful characters that's, I, when I say fun to write, they're just, you know. But anyway, he's an important character as you read this. There's so many shenanigans that go on at the trial uh, trying to get him to testify. All right, let me just read one more. Let me pick just one more. And um, uh, let me give you a little taste of um, Neva and her sister. Um, this, is a, this will be our last one, but it's a little bit, it's not terribly long. It's a little bit longer than the others, okay? But they'll be the last one I'll read. Um, some of these other characters, you'll just have to find them on your own. Discover them on your own. Uh, I think this is self-explanatory. They're in Denver. Um, um, well, I'll just, I'll just explain, read it. A week earlier, a postcard had arrived at the Haywoods Park Hill house. Now, remember who, I just want to make sure you remember for those who Neva and, and Winnie are. They're the two sisters. Neva's in a, they called it an invalid chair back then. So I say an invalid chair, I mean a wheelchair, what we would call a wheelchair. Um, and Winnie's her about 10, she's, Winnie's about 23. Neva's in her mid-30s. They're quite a bit of distance in age. A week earlier, a postcard arrived at the Haywoods Park Hill house. The card bore a painting card bore a painting of a city block long six-story massive red brick building with large windows connected by bands of limestone and topped by two-story flagpoles bearing 20-foot American flags. Its ground floor was adorned with awning covered with awning covered doors and 650 linear feet of display windows running along a wide street illustrated by horse-drawn coaches, passing trolleys, a few automobiles, and a slew of happy white people. The card read, announcing the Grand Emporium expansion of the Denver Dry Goods Store, the largest store in the Central West, 400 feet long, seven acres floor area, 1,200 employees, a $2,500,000 stock, 15th to 16th on California Street, 
Denver, Colorado. Now Winnie and Neva, now Winnie and Neva were approaching the Denver dry goods elevators, having just finished lunch on the 2,000-seat tea room on the top floor. Both wore tailored jackets over white blouses, but Neva's skirt was mossy and pleated, while Winnie's was crimson and snug. Their deep-crowned hats rode on their stacked hair like two ships on stormy blonde seas. Wheeling Neva's invalid chair into the elevator, Winnie asked, where first? Corsets, first and last, said Neva. She might have heard Winnie's snicker, but Neva's mind was a mile and two months away. On a similar moment, when George, George is her lover, who's a very sweet man, um, a similar moment when George had rolled her onto the elevator in the Pioneer Building. He never left her mind, was always there, like a, the lovely hum of a song that never goes away. On the wall behind the five other women in the descending elevator, a, a sign announced that Stetson's saddles and everything else were available in the stockman's room on the north end of the second floor. Another sign eagerly encouraged patrons to stroll the brand new 400-foot main aisle on the first floor. I want to get George a Stetson, said Neva, her eyes on the stockman sign. Winnie replied, us first, then them. Neva nodded as the attendant announced, fourth floor, ladies wear. Lined with mahogany paneling below lead, leaded glass uh, clear story windows, the women's, excuse me, I lost my place. The women's floor seemed to stretch beyond comprehension. They stared into the distance, absorbing the store's expanded new space, from undergarments to ball gowns, from pockets to ostrich hats. Everything was there and it was a buzz with employees, all featly dressed and responding to tinkling bells, summoning them to where they were most needed. Well, this does it. They've won. I'm never going back to Daniels and Fisher, said Winnie, referring to the department store two blocks away that boasted a 21-story clock tower. Or Mays, added Neva. Or Mays, echoed Winnie. For, from a spool, spool of thread to a $1,000 dress. They have a $1,000 dress here, asked Winnie her voice up an octave at the thought. Never nodded. Read it in the post. I think I need a new pair of gloves just to shop here. Bill has an account? Yes, but what? Asked Winnie. He does, Neva said, then inhaled fully. Women were shuffling by them like torrents of water around river boulders. Neva looked up from her chair. If you're waiting for me to suddenly start walking, this would be the place that miracle would happen. But until then, I either start rolling or you push. No, no response. Winnie, snapped Neva, seeing her sister lost in shopper's reverie. Let's go, corsets, $1,000 dress, then down to two for a Stetson. The dress first, said Winnie, recovering. At the far end of the floor, about 100 people, mostly women, were in various states and statuses relative to the processes of the couture dress department, selecting, making, and purchasing. About a third were customers and their accompaniments. Uh, accompaniments. Some in chairs, some lounging in settees, some standing on stools as seamstresses flowed around them, pinning and chalking, measuring their waist, their hem heights, and their spending money. Strolling among the throng were a few imperious head dressmakers with long white sticks with which they identified points for improvement, fit, amplification, or embellishment. In the center of this activity was a tall glass case 
excuse me, in the center of this activity, in a tall glass case, stood a headless mannequin wearing the $1,000 evening dress of gold and silk with oak leaf embroidery and a three-foot train. Neva rolled herself close and read the placard. G. Guseffi, limited, $1,150. That's it, quipped Winnie. I saw that pattern in McCall's. Uh-huh, said Neva. An hour later, they had made it barely 100 feet to the lingerie department and its array of shelves and display tables presenting perfectly formed stacks of corsets of all sorts and makes. Winnie examined a long white one. Oh my, look at this, she said, bringing it to Neva. It's $12. Truly? Neva took it, admiring the ribbons. It's satin for a wedding dress. She handed it back. Suitable for a bridal trousseau, read Winnie. These satin ones are fine. I need short for this chair or just not wear one, like that boned underbodice that, that again, Neva glowered, I'm not dead and I can stand. I don't think Bill would care. No, he wouldn't, retorted Neva. You keep looking at those bridal ones. Maybe one comes with a husband of your own. Yet another hour passed before they were down on the second floor, ensconced in the smell of leather and wool, and bathed in baritone voices, punctuated by summoning bells and the occasional hiss from steam forms shaping hat brims and crowns. Neva compared two Stetsons. I think I like this one, she said to the clerk. The Galena, excellent choice, Miss, Hay Miss Haywood. Neva looked at the man. Um, yes. I sold your husband a beaver victor two weeks ago. Size seven and seven eighths? Is that big? Yes, our biggest. But no worries, ma'am. We can stretch this Galena same as we did his victor. No, no need, she paused. Can you give me a minute? Yes, of course. She rolled to Winnie, who was trying on derbies in a mirror. I need your help. What is it? asked Winnie. He thinks the hat's for Bill, but George's head isn't so fat. You're afraid Bill might find out? Phew, Neva squinted. How many dresses has he bought? does he buy you? Winnie glanced away. Neva continued. I just don't want that clerk thinking things, so come over and say it's for someone you know. All right. So... Um, okay, one time. I lied. Can I do one more short one of Jack and Carla? Our two, our two young, and then I, then I promise I'm done. Um, these are our younger two um, characters who are our, our spies, which sort of weave throughout this whole story and carry it forward. Um, Jack awoke, and, and they've. They've fallen in love by this, throughout the story, um, and, and anyway. Jack awoke in the pale light of an early day, feeling her touch, but didn't open his eyes. If he stayed put, maybe Carla would continue for a while, her small, warm fingertip moving along the curve of his chin, over its square end, and up to the crease midway to his bottom lip, where she seemed to measure the fold, and then up to his lip, tracing across it. He hadn't shaved in two days, but he didn't... But she didn't seem to mind. He felt tempted to playfully bite at her finger to scare her, making her yelp and laugh, but that would end this, so he remained still, trying his best to not reveal himself as awake. She lingered on his bottom lip, feeling its roughness. He sensed her warmth, the smell of her closeness, and then felt her kiss just, just that lip. She pulled back, her finger resuming its tour, its journey of exploration. On to his left cheekbone and the stubble beneath it, she stopped and moved to the other cheek 
and he could feel her comparing each side's hair growth. He heard her whisper, hmm, but wasn't sure what to make of it. Maybe she was noticing the area on his left jawline about the size of a nickel where no hair grew. She traced his ears. He hoped they weren't dirty. Then his eyebrows. She smoothed them with the pad of her finger and then traced his hairline around his forehead before touching the bridge of his nose. Then each eye. She gave a sunny laugh and he knew she could tell he was awake. He flinched, his flinch having given him away. He grinned but kept his eyes closed, lifting his mouth to find hers, feeling her tongue between his lips. Then he tried to press back. When he tried to press back, she murmured, no, and held his mouth with her fingers, running her tongue along his teeth. She, he chuckled and opened his eyes. You ruined my work, she whispered. I was seeing how old you are. You're checking my teeth like a horse? Exactly. He laughed. I've fallen for a gypsy circus freak. Fallen, have you? You missed the gypsy circus freak part. She slid her body on top of him, straddling him, but keeping her breast against his chest. Feeling himself hard against her, he moaned. Back to your teeth, she said. He snorted a laugh. I might have bad breath. Gypsy freaks don't mind. I like it when you let me do whatever I want to you. It'll be my turn next. Good. Thirty minutes later, having made love, she was nestled in his arms, his mouth near her ear. Will you go to court this morning, he whispered. Watch them picking the jury. Must we talk about, she began, then added, mm-hmm. Please tell Darrow that the sheep rancher O.V. Seaburn is union, died in the wool for Haywood. Okay, darling, I'll tell him. Now hush. So, they end up working together. Um, I'll call it quits on reading then. Um, hopefully it gives you some sense of things without too much of the complexities of the plot. Um, so, any questions, any thoughts on this? I really uh, kind of wrap this up. Um, any, anything else I can share with you or tell you? Um, it's been a labor of love, um, and as these things have to be, um, I, uh, it was a lot longer, so for anybody who complains of how long it is, <laughs> it could have been worse. Um, but it's not as long as, the, as I told you, as Big Trouble. Um, um, you know, and I, 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 I wonder for him if he had just, for those who came late, a, a guy who wrote a nonfiction book on the same subject who killed himself afterwards, claiming it was this story that drove him to it, to kill himself. Um, I, I wonder if he had found the women in the story, if he found the humanity, it maybe have, might have lightened his load a little bit. Yes. Oh, more than I could possibly count. Um, um, I edit in a, I mean, I had two editors, formal, formal editing, I had two outside editors. Um, but myself, you know, it's an ongoing process. Um, so it's hard to tell you, you know, like it wasn't a number. But I did get sick of it, let's put it that way. You get tired of it after you reread your, it's like, oh my God, I got it. And then I'm thinking, shit, why'd I write this thing so long? Um, I, you know, I had fun with some things I probably should, you know, could get, they ended up on the cutting room floor. Um, I got a little bit, you know, happy with having fun following some thread. Um, 
I, I spent some time, I had, because it's from the male perspective, a lot about car, you know, not, this isn't a book about cars, but I, it's in there some, the flavoring about cars at the time. Um, so I spent some, a little bit of time thinking about planes, things that were going on, but I was like, okay, that's really off tangential. Um, I mean, there's some other tangential little lectures. Those are the more chunky things I took out. Now, there's plenty of, there's tons, as you, I don't know if you're a writer, but there's tons you take out, you know, in the process that, you know, I can take this, um, six paragraphs and try to make it, you know, I, I challenge myself. I'm like, all right, how, how can I make that into two? Um, and then, you know, uh, so anyway, I don't know if that answers your question. Yes, sir. Oh, years. Yeah, I, but not all, not linearly. Like the one I'm working on right now, it's going to be a lot quicker. Um, um, because it's, it, it, I think you missed it, and it's, it's okay, but I, I found the story actually a while ago when I finished, I'm looking up there because Fortunate Son's back there, but, um, but when I finished Fortunate Son, I found this not long after when I read the, uh, the, the nonfiction. Um, and but literally four years went by probably three or four years, um, before I found it. I just couldn't fall in love with it until I never bothered me. I knew about the relationship with the sister. I knew about that. And that just kept perk, like, what is that? What would be in her mind, you know? Yeah, just researching and just, you just kind of keep, I was working on other projects, you know, but you keep, it kept coming to me. I mean, there was times when I put it aside, so I'm just not going to write this next. I, I, just, I just, you know, I'll write something else. Um, and then it was uh, it just once I found that thread, that little thread of Neva, and then I just started digging at it, and then it just sort of opened up, and I thought, okay, there's something here. Yeah. I ask, Florence. We're in LA, and I know you're a screenwriter as well. So when you were writing this, were you looking at the feature film, or did you genuinely write it from his book perspective? I, I wrote it as a book perspective because I've fallen in love with that form. You're right, and you do know, I mean, I have done. Um, but I have, I mean, I, I teach visual storytelling and other things. So, I mean, I'm, I mean, I love that format. Um, so a lot of it probably shows and it's, you know, my agent thinks it's, you know, got, you know, it's, it's got some legs right now. There's a lot of possibilities of it moving to a series, um, which I'm, ex I'm excited about. A mini series, a mini series, a, a limited mini series. Um, but, but I mean, I don't want to get my head on stuff with that. So I don't know. If, I'm sorry. To answer no, your question. Because, um, like, because in the process of you actually go here in LA and you're right. as a screenwriter, and I'm just right. curious if you started it genuinely as a book or you Yeah, no, no. I didn't ever start. Okay, I know what you're saying. Okay. Uh, no, yeah, you know, some of my projects I'll start like thinking, oh, this would be a screenplay. And then I realize, oh, I think I'll maybe make this into a novel. No, not at all. This was always going to be a novel. Okay. My interest in dialogue and that sort of thing hopefully shows a bit in it. Um, so I, 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 I try, I'm not, and I try to be, repre you know, anyway, I don't know where I'm going with that, but yeah, there's, yeah. Yeah, it was entirely written as a novel. Yeah, it wasn't, um, it was too much, it was, it was, it was too fun, delicious to write, for me, to the research and all that other stuff to, as a screenplay, I think it would be harder. I'm just not, I'm not even thinking about that for, um, you know, the adaptation, uh, I'm not interested. No, I, that's for somebody else. To, I'm, I'm too interested in the next story on this series. Uh, it's, it's, it's got me, so I'm going to focus on that. But, but in any case, yes, sir. I'm curious about uh, just getting all the historical pieces 
so so intimidating to sit down and to just write a scene because I'd start thinking, what is this thing? What is this thing? What did they? How did they do this? And it would just drive me crazy. How did you get through that process? Well, <laughs> I've never told anybody else. I wrote them all naked, not naked, but just unclothed. I wrote the whole book, never described any clothing. And I sort of felt like a wardrobe department. Then I went back through and dressed them all. Because I did all this research, it was so research heavy that I just poured myself into I mean, okay, not at all. Like I had, our main character, Jack, has this black hat that he wears. And you know, some, some iconic pieces I was writing at the time. But a lot of like what the sisters were wearing and that sort of thing, I just did it all at once. I went back. It was a, a, I don't know if that's the way you're supposed to, but that's just the way I did it. Because I was like so, I spent so much time researching down to the detail of what fabrics they could have gotten, what would be there, what that $1,000 dress was made out of, all those things. And so when you're so enriched in that and you, just, you spend weeks just in breath, then you're really, and then I went through the book and dressed everybody. Um, uh, and, and was way overdressed. And some of my editors were like, oh my God, you go on. I mean, I was like stitching, and she's got this kind of, this back stitch goes on with this particular type of, uh, you know, uh, under, oh my God. And so um, I had to cut, that was a lot of editors going, oh my, you know, like, what? Um, you're really over describing their clothing. So I had, to, I, had to back, I had to back off of that. But I had fun doing it, you know, in that process. Men's hats were so interesting at that time. You know, it was like it was just this, the Western hat come, was coming in, but was leaving, and you get the, the, the other hats, the dirty, all these, you know, other styles were just starting in, which would come to be what, um, what was the main hat throughout most of the, 18, uh, the 1900s. But anyway, anyway, sorry, but yeah. It, it, was, it was a lot of, I mean, people would, I don't know if Meredith ever heard it, but other people that were around me at the time, I would say, you know, I can't talk right now, I'm in 1907. Because um, you do spend, that, that's the fun of historical fiction for me, is, is that um, take, you know, hopefully, you know, hope, taking the reader there. Um, some people know me, I made the first virtual reality feature film, and, um, and that's all part of my interest. It's sort of this sort of, how do you take somebody and put them in these places? Um, so that's, anyway. Well, I hope, it's one of those things you hope um, that I, I think that one of the things that bugs me about some other projects or maybe films or, or books, it bugs a lot of people when they're too on the nose and you go, oh, well, you're just trying to preach a point of view. I really like some of, it's gotten, and I'm, I'm proud to say I don't I need to stand up here and brag, but it's gotten some really strong reviews and I'm really proud of those. And one of the reviewers I really like said, you can't tell which side he's on. And I'm like, oh, good. Really, they're both assholes. <laughs> but, but that's not true. There's also good on both sides. It's like it's, you know. Um, but what I was more, you'll get, you know, we are, this word socialist is being thrown around so much today. It always has been, but we're getting this new surge of it. Um, and what interested me on the political side, I know, I know what your question was. I, it's something I forgot to say earlier. I, I know our time's about up. Um, is another thing that interested me about this time period, I forgot to mention why I even came to the story, was I was working on a story, and I've still got it percolating in the back of my head, I might write it, uh, about during you know, the Russian Revolution. And it was just, when you kind of get into this, you start thinking, what all was going on in the world at the time? When you have Russia, all these big agricultural countries are experimenting with socialism and eventually communism. 
and you get a lot of this change happening, and you, it begs the question, why not in America? Why didn't we become socialist? Um, and it's, really, it's kind of an interesting answer, and I don't try to answer, but I just drop you into this whole issue of socialism at the time and how strongly they were pushing for it in the unions and that sort of thing. But you get this corporations versus socialistic concerns for the little, you know, and you get a wage divide. The wage divide was huge. You get politics at its worst, but there's a lot of, I see a lot of commonality, um, especially with Citizens United and corporations being called citizens and this whole push towards the shareholders' right. That's how we define our morality relative to capitalism, whereas you have this pushback that says the socialistic pushback, no one wants to use that word, but it is, or a populist pushback that says, no, wait a minute, humans are first, not profits. Well, that's exactly what was going on. And we see this in this birthing. And to me, it's right at this melting pot of these two, th con them coming together without a legal system to separate them. <laughs> and thus you have violence. And to me, that's, if there's an underlying, and I hope it's not anywhere on the nose, but if there's underlying mess, not message, but is the fragility of how quick normal humans, people can go to violence. And how our system is so important that we have it in place that it is, that it keeps us, and you have these exact same, these are us, these are Americans, these are just, these are us, not only you know, 100 years ago, that's it, who would go to such links um, for what they believed in. Um, anyway, so to me, that's, to me that's the relevance, and I hope it's just not too on the nose. But I also hope it's not too vague either. You know, it's one of those balances you want to hit. Like, I hope it's not too buried, the relevance to today, but I also hope it's not like, you know, be warned, you know, <laughs> whatever. Right, listen, if there's any, anything else, right, listen, I really appreciate it. Um, thanks. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.